you kind of got out ahead of me there with the chant for, as it's called, opening the sutra. So uh, now I'm trying to catch up. Y'all chant quite fast. I hadn't noticed that in previous visits. So. If you tell people to slow down, then sometimes it gets too far that way, and then it gets draggy and kind of pulls the energy down. So the idea is to find the pace that is neither too fast nor too slow, and that makes it, uh, moves it from uh, a kind of... um, automatic recitation into a practice with the voice. So it can be good to experiment with. I saw a part of a uh, a film that uh, some people had made, and um, I think one of the the principles involved in making the film is a, a person of uh, transgender and. Um, now, I confess, I don't know which pronouns that person liked to use, but I think for our purposes here, that's okay. Anyway, that person said something that I found quite striking. Uh, I think I think it's he. Anyway, he said, the most... Uh, radical or controversial thing he had ever done in his life was to be true to himself. Uh, I, uh, I, I quite respected that. But that's maybe an expression that uh, sounds a little odd to Buddhists. Does does that mean that the person was, you know, mistaken somehow, or proceeding on an incorrect basis of understanding? And our teachers periodically tell us 
uh, something along similar lines. Our teachers may tell us, you know, to to just be ourselves, which I think is much the same thing. What if being ourselves exposes us to social disapproval? or even danger. And in any case, what does that mean to persons following the the path of the Buddhas? One of the main principles of Buddhist teaching, of course, is that of anatman. Which he presented in spirited opposition to the prevailing religious orthodoxy of his day, which held that there is an Atman. That is, there is a permanent, separate, irreducible kernel of self. And Anatman, as as you may remember, is one of the three prominent features of our life that Shakyamuni Buddha identified. And the other two being, I'm sure somebody, maybe you all know, what are the other two? There's anatman. These are sometimes called the three marks of existence. Maybe impermanence and suffering. That's right. Mm-hmm. There's ceaseless change. There is ceaseless unease and there is no abiding separate self. So this kind of presents us with the challenge of if we are to be ourselves as our teachers sometimes tell us 
What self is that that we are being? Um, I would volunteer that we are being just exactly who we are in that moment if we're being true to ourselves. And even if we're not true to ourselves, then we're manifesting not being true to ourselves. There's an ultimate truth in that. I, uh, I'm not sure who's speaking, but thank you. I mean, it's Andrea. Nice to see you. Oh, Hi. I expand my screen here. Well, I still can't see you, but I know you're there somewhere. In addition to being taught to be ourselves, uh, which, by the way, is is uh, echoed in our our ceremonies of initiation, where usually the the preceptor speaks the line, do not put another head on top of your head. This also refers to not traveling the world with an elaborate wardrobe of um, uh, personal manifestations that are determined by certain exigencies of the situations we find ourselves in. It can be quite difficult for us 
to uh, allow ourselves to be seen as just exactly who is there. There are, after all, personal phenomena, that is, the phenomena of the person. And one of our habits of misknowledge is to mistake that for a permanent entity. Uh, greatly aided by the phenomenon or the apparent phenomenon of memory. By now, uh, I think we've learned though that memory, it turns out, is far more fungible than many of us are accustomed to think. Another tendency, of course, is when we've heard this teaching that I'm describing, talking about, we may be left with the conclusion that there is something to get rid of. It's actually pretty common for people to have the impression that there is a um, a person of some sort there who is problematic and has to be dispensed with or gotten rid of. And that, of course, is another kind of mis misknowledge, misknowing. And the person who is here right now is completely adequate to the circumstances. 
And if we adorn that person with a crown of permanence or separate sovereignty, then we are putting another head on top of our head. And this is a burden, you know, we can almost feel. It almost feels like a kind of weight. So there are a couple of extremes there. One of Buddha's great talents was for identifying extremes. Uh, one is there is a superb and sovereign entity here that I must defend against all comers. And another one is there's a superb and sovereign entity here and I must kill it. And some people think that when they hear the teaching of, uh, well, I was reading in the record of transmitting the light, remarkable work by a Kesan Zenji. And uh, Kezan uh, quotes Tian Tong Rujing, who was Dogen's teacher, saying, Chan or Zen study is body and mind falling away. And sometimes people think that that is something they have to figure out how to do. Which is just, that's another way of deciding there's someone there who is a problem and it has to be gotten rid of. Buddha's insight, of course, was that the phenomena of the five skandhas does not include uh, a fixed and separate entity. And that such an entity has never been found and can never be found. So the phenomena of the five skandhas as we are experiencing those phenomena right now is as much of a person as there is.
And so the practice of Chan and Zen as the falling away body-mind does not mean body-mind is something to get rid of. Instead, body-mind is something whose nature to fall away moment by moment needs to be seen. And if we watch what's actually happening, that is in fact what we're seeing. So can we be true to that self? Yes, we can. Just do not add or subtract. Uh, one of our ancestors, the, uh, if I remember correctly, the 17th Indian ancestor who was named Sanghanandi. And when he encountered his teacher, who was, of course, the 16th ancestor, who went by the name Rahula Bhadra, Rahulabhadra presented him with a, an extremely peculiar little poem. And there's a, a note in the text that this poem is among the, or perhaps is, the most challenging bit of translation in the entire text. It's in Chinese, and both the subject matter and the, the grammatical or literary expression are so slippery that there are many different versions of how to translate this little poem. Uh, but the one I learned goes something like... Um, this is a this is uh, ancestor number sixteen addressing his soon to be student Sanghanandi, and he says, "Because I have no self, you should see myself."
But as you take me for your teacher, you should know I am not myself. How about that? may not be quite as um, bad as it sounds. Uh, I have some version of an understanding of this poem, which I can share with you, but I'm not going to try and say that that's the right one. I'm just going to say that's how it seems to me. So by this time, uh, Sanghanandi, who was to be Rahula Bhadra's student, was a very accomplished meditator and liked to spend many hours in absorption or a state of samadhi. So uh, he was, in some respects, pretty accomplished. And he and um, uh, his soon-to-be teacher, Rahulabhadra, also in this chapter, have a long conversation that's even more confusing than that poem. Where they like, uh, sort of, they're whacking a tennis ball back and forth. And they're they're all they, this whole conversation surrounds the understanding of what constitutes samadhi, and they wind up using the metaphor of a a gold mine. So a I don't know some sort of deep place where there's this gold. So they go back and forth. You you might read that if you like. It's a uh, it winds up being rather funny. Finally, Sanghanandi, the the next ancestor, he he basically gives up, and Rahula Bhadra, his teacher, presents him with that poem, which I just spoke, and Sanghanandi says, "Please." Allow me to be your student. So Rahula Bhadra has said, because I have no self, you should see myself. So I hear that as a warning to Sanghanandi, 
who knows Buddha's teaching that there is no self. But Buddha's teaching was not, there's no self at all. Buddha's teaching was, is. The self that you may assume is there, is not there. You should see the self that is there, though. What is that? How is that self? But Sanghanandi and Rahulabhadra were to have the very particular connection and relationship of teacher and student. So Rahulabhadra says, as you take me as your teacher, You should know I am not myself. Namely, you and I, student, must meet where the self, the selves, are nothing but space. We are meeting there now, but if you do not understand yet, you will. And this inspired Sanghanandi to bow. Please allow me to be your student. These uh, these characters could use poetry to deconstruct 
wrongly held views. Pretty amazing. Uh, Sanghanandi went on to have a student named um, Gaya Shatta. Oh, this is still in India. Back there in the deeps of time where we can't really see. History is beyond our grasp. And um, uh, continuing this thread of the poetry that deconstructs once uh, Sanghanandi and Gayashata, his student, were sitting zazen. And um, there was a, a wind bell. We have one here in the backyard. I forget, is there one there at uh, Valley Streams? Do you have a wind bell outside? No? Might be nice. Not a real loud one, mind you, but... Anyway, they're sitting Zazen and there's the sound of the wind ringing the bell. And as occasionally our teachers will do, Sanghanandi speaks very quietly in the meditation hall and says to his student, Gayashata, Is that the bell ringing? Or the wind ringing? And uh, Gayashata says, It is my mind ringing. Sanghanandi says, And who is mind? And Gayasata says, Because all is silent.
speaking in this way is speaking in the midst of the body-mind that falls away and falls away and falls away, which is the only kind there is. That wind bell story is one of my favorites. Because all is silent. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I I kind of feel like I'm just annoying y'all, so maybe I'll stop here and <laughs> give up and see if you have any questions or comments. I think that might be Brendan. It, it is I. Ah, okay. Romeo. Hi. Thank you. Um, just a, a little comment since we're, um, well, since you're telling some campfire tales tonight, Zen campfire tales, mm -hmm. um, I had one pop in my head that I haven't thought of in a little while, and I never thought of it in this way, and perhaps it's relevant to what uh, you're speaking about tonight, but it's it's real short. It's um, Jim told last year, it's the, 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 the teacher asks the students, uh, bring me the, the, say the, uh, the, the rhino horn. Oh, the fan. fan. Thank you. I right. forgot the object, the rhino horn fan. Right. Student goes to go find it. Can't find it. Comes back. Teachers, I cannot find the rhino horn fan. And the teacher says, well, then bring me the rhinoceros. Yeah. <laughs> Broken. It's oh, broken. Rhino, oh, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah, broken. It's broken. Right. So bring me the rhinoceros. And In the that case. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that came back to me. I thought, okay, well, rhino horn fan is broken. So what's what's there to, what is there to bring? And, well, I should think about more what is the rhinoceros? What is there to, to see if you're, you're able to see past what is usually there. Well, so so that's another kind of uh, deconstruction. So I think, in that sense, it, you're you're right. It fits in this context. Thank you for your talk tonight. Mm -hmm. This is this is Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi, Mio. Sometimes, uh, you know, I meet some Zen teachers over my life. I have met some Zen teachers. And one thing that is funny is that, uh, you know, they, they, they often seem like really um, strong people. You know, they, they seem 
I seem um, rather sure of themselves in a certain way that's actually believable, you know. And uh, it's kind of, I just think it's it's kind of remarkable that uh, a practice that uh, is, you know, always, well, you know, is, is potentially or, you know, well, not potentially, but, you know, and it's not even practice. It's just that, you know, body and mind is always dropping off. And, and yet here are these people that look really, you know, solid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. think there's a question there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so in a sense, they are being true to the self that is constantly falling away. And I, I, I agree, that makes them look sometimes uh, formidable. And occasionally, you know, they will get caught. I don't know if you've noticed that phenomenon. I have to get rid of this picture of myself. It's much too big. Pardon me. There we go. Um, I remember a, a, a visit that was paid to uh, the, the San Francisco Zen Center many years ago by a celebrated master. Uh, who was on his way back with some um, some of his students, I think, uh, back to Japan, having visited, I think, uh, some, um, among other things, uh, Christian monasteries in Europe and in the U.S., and they were going back to Japan, and Uh, when this fellow came in to give a talk in the Buddha Hall there at Page Street, he gave that impression that I think that Jim is referring to. And I, at the time, I thought, well, that's very impressive. Ooh, cool guy. And then he said, uh, among other things, during his talk, he said, well, I went to some of these monasteries in the West and uh, they don't have anything to teach me. And that changed my attitude. And I suddenly thought, oh, he is arrogant. He can't see that they have nothing to teach him. If that's all he sees, they have nothing to teach me. He is caught in something. Some role that he is now invested in. I am the guy. I am the big guy. And don't you forget it. I look back on that encounter nowadays and think, 
yeah, I think he was stuck a little bit. He was very young. And he had taken over the running of this monastery in uh, in Japan, in Kyoto, a very, very famous place. And the former abbot was very, very famous, and he was his disciple. And it's like he was carrying that. I guess he forgot the teaching that I am not myself. I think he did, you know. Maybe only for a little while. <laughs> Maybe only when he was giving a, that talk. In which case, that's good. But I don't... I was fortunate and I am still grateful to have met Suzuki Roshi. And he wasn't like that at all. Not at all. Which in itself was a great lesson. Oh, uh... I couldn't quite I, hear. I just I was just gonna add uh to what Jim said. I just in my experience just that you know, the teachers that have really drawn me in were the ones who were less um holding themselves so sure sure of themselves and more the ones often women who would be saying I'm not sure if I'm what I'm doing is effective or enough you know and for me you know just someone who's sharing exactly where they're working and that they're still working that that I'm just personal but that's what really brings me closer to the practice mm-hmm yeah, I agree. Um, there's a a hand, an electronic hand in the air, and I think it belongs to Dell. Is that right? Uh, yes, that mm-hmm. is. I um, you were talking about the record of the transmission of light, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if some of the stories that you had told tonight were in that. And yes. if, and yes. if so, what edition is it? Uh. I was uh, using the edition that the the Japanese uh, Soto school uh, uh, paid to have uh, published, translated and published. And it's a magnificent edition. It's two volumes. Uh, if you're a scholar, which I'm not really, it's packed with all kinds of notes and passages in Chinese and Japanese and so forth. So that's what I was referring to. But these stories are in the several other editions of the record of transmitting the light also. And they're less uh, embedded in this uh, impressive scholarly apparatus. So you can find it in, um, uh, uh, it should, these stories should be in any version that you find. Okay. There's probably okay, thank you. Three or four of them, maybe. Yeah. 
Sure. There, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Mio. It's Dora Lee. Oh, hi, Dora Lee. Hi. Um, well, I wish I could remember the, your or the translation of the poem that you read. I can't remember it exactly. But I was wondering whether, in a, in a sense, that same poem could be spoken by the student as well as the teacher. And I was just imagining myself and my, with my teacher reciting that poem in, inside myself somehow, mm-hmm. because then there's a kind of meeting in that space that opens up, because in a sense, everything opens in that mm-hmm. moment. Well, sure, you can, you know, the, the second line could be, well, this is just, this is just me making stuff up, but the second line could also be, um, because, oh, sorry, I have a ferocious cramp, um, uh, because I am your student, I can see that you are not yourself. That's another way to put it. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Pardon me, I'm getting old here, so I... <laughs> Not everything is working as gracefully as it used to. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll just add as a f- footnote before we all get to go home and go to bed. Um, uh, right right now, uh, in our, our circumstances here, in our little sangha, and, and this is always true to some extent somewhere, but r- right now, things are a little difficult. Uh, some of you know, maybe my brother is seriously ill and has been in hospital for more than two weeks now. And uh, does not seem to be recovering. So this is, you know, he is not only my only sibling, but my only family. And so this has brought a poignancy and a pain into my experience of my life. Also, uh, one of our residents here recently lost her mother, which has been quite a significant event for her. And, and she also has a wonderful little dog who has lived with us here for quite a few years who is also gravely ill and probably dying. And uh, these factors uh, make it even more important and useful for us to study the body-mind that falls away constantly and to be 
be aware when we're kind of giving out of habit or giving into the tendency to acquire and carry luggage, which we don't really need to carry. And the, the body mind that grieves is no less the body mind that falls away moment by moment. There's a, another. There's a poem from the Book of Serenity that I, I quite like. And um, in, in this poem, one of, I think one of our ancestors. Uh, wrote. Uh, there's a there's a a river, uh, called the Tsang the Tsanglan River, and he says. When the Tsonglong is high, I wash my brushes. And when the Tsonglong is low, I wash my feet. And this is also a poem about not needing to carry unnecessary baggage. Sometimes the river's high and sometimes it's low. That's all. Well, Shall we call it a night? I think I can see almost everybody. Deep gratitude. This time. Can you see us all bowing? I you? think I can. Thank you for being here tonight, and thank you for being patient. <laughs>